Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith, coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, we discuss what happens to a church's building when the church itself shuts down. And, of course, we'll have more from Ukraine. And we're also seeing dramatic shifts in the fundraising environment. I'll have details later in the program. We begin today with news that the former editor of Christianity Today, Mark Galley, has been accused of sexual harassment. Yeah, the editor is uh, one of the more prominent figures, or was until his recent retirement, in what is one of the most prominent evangelical magazines in the country. And he made national headlines for criticizing Donald Trump's failed character. He himself now has been accused of sexual harassment during his tenure as editor, according to a new report that was recently released. That report was done by the independent organization Guidepost Solutions. A new report from Christianity Today magazine published on Tuesday claims that uh, the ministry failed to hold former editor-in-chief Mark Galley and the organization's advertising director accountable for sexual harassment for more than a decade. That harassment included, and these are words from the report, demeaning, inappropriate, and offensive behavior, uh, according to CT's news editor, Daniel Silliman, uh, which was edited by senior news editor Kate Shelnut and published without review by the ministry's executive leadership. Silliman reported finding a dozen firsthand accounts of harassment. Yeah, according to Daniel Silliman's story, women at CT were touched at work in ways that made them uncomfortable. They heard men with authority over their careers make comments about the sexual desirability of their bodies. And in at least two cases, they heard department heads hint at openness to an affair. Now, according to the report, Galley was reprimanded in 2019 after three women in three days reported to human resources that he'd inappropriately touched them. However, the article said 2019 was not the first time that Galley had been reported to HR for inappropriate behavior toward female colleagues. It was just the first time a record was kept. Yeah, in a phone interview with Religion News Service, Mark Galley said that he was deeply troubled by the allegations in the story, and he, in fact, denied the allegations. Several of the incidents in the story were taken out of context, he said, or were simply false. Warren, you know Mark Galley. Do you have anything to add to the story? Well, you're right. I do know Mark, and in fact, consider him a friend. Uh, some of our listeners may remember that last year I interviewed uh, Mark Galley on this very podcast. I reached out to Mark and asked him if he wanted to comment for our story. He said he did not, but he has subsequently issued a statement that we have linked to in the story that we published, which you can find, of course, on the Ministry Watch website. I'll have to say that my primary emotion is sadness. Uh, first of all, sadness for those who felt her harassed by Mark Galley and sadness that a great deal of what Mark advocated for will likely be discredited because of these new allegations. Mark Galley had had some tough, but I think necessary things to say about the state of evangelicalism in this country, and it's likely that this important message will be dismissed in large part uh, by many because of these new allegations. Our next story involves Grove City College, a Christian college in Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, it's a conservative Christian college in Pennsylvania, and in a spirit of full disclosure, I should say that my daughter and Natasha, your friend Brittany mm-hmm. Smith, um, was uh, a gra- is a graduate of Grove City College. The school, though, has become the latest battleground in the evangelical woke war since about 2020. Concerns about wokeness, which is a term used for those who um, talk about systemic racism, uh, and recently it's been connected to critical race theory, have pitted Christians against one another in both the pews and in the classroom. Grove City College, which is nestled in a quiet borough of Grove City, about an hour north of Pittsburgh in northwestern Pennsylvania, has become a prime example. And on February 16th, the college's board of trustees stated that it categorically rejects critical race theory and similar critical schools of thought as antithetical to Grove City College's mission and values. But not everyone thought that the statement was a good idea. Yeah, they didn't. In fact, this week, a petition from a group of Grove City alumni, parents, and students asked the school not to inhibit discussions about race and racism on campus. The board's decision and the dissenting petition follow months of debate over whether Grove City College has succumbed to mission drift from its traditional values. The controversy began last fall when a group of parents and alumni authored a petition raising concerns about critical race theory, uh, which has an academic framework that sees racism as embedded in institutions and policies. Policies. They said that critical race theory was threatening the academic and spiritual foundations that make the school, Grove City College, distinctly Christian. The authors of that November 10th petition, which was titled Save GCC from CRT, called the theory a destructive and profoundly unbiblical worldview that sees white people as intrinsically racist in a society that favors whites and oppresses blacks and other minorities. This, they said, undermines the Christian understanding that all humans are created equally and they share the image of God. Warren, these are important questions, but I'm wondering if the controversy at Grove City is a bit of a uh, tempest in a teapot. The original February petition had less than 500 signatures, and the rebuttal petition has less than 200 signatures. So this is hardly a national movement. Well, I think that's a good point. And, you know, sometimes with stories like this, we have to struggle with, you know, does this uh, incident or this event rise to the level of significance to be of interest to a national audience? However, I do think that this story has captured national attention because the questions are those that a lot of Christian institutions are dealing with right now. And Grove City College uh, is a school that you might say punches above its weight. Uh, Though relatively small, only about 2,500 students, it's considered one of the elite Christian colleges in the nation. It also has a reputation for open debate and the promotion of thoughtful conservatism, what some might call classical liberalism. And Paul McNulty, the president of the college, was a former assistant attorney general during the George W. Bush administration. So the national prominence of the school makes the outcome of this debate something of a bellwether for other Christian colleges going through the same thing. And that's why we will, of course, stay tuned and be bringing you more stories about both Grove City College and this controversy as things develop. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, the Anglican Church of Canada apologizes to sexual abuse survivors. 
I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, the story we promised before the break. Anglican Church of Canada leaders responded on Sunday, March 13th, to an open letter issued by ACC2 that uh, an advocacy group for victims of sexual abuse in the church. Yeah, ACC2 identified a number of grievances against the Anglican Church of Canada, and the ACC uh, essentially agreed with most of them and apologized. Here's a portion of the letter. As the Council of the General Synod, which is the leadership body, we offer our sincere and unconditional apology for wrongs committed and harm done to the three individuals who were sources for the original story. Uh, In particular, we are deeply sorry that they have suffered further as a result of the way the story was handled. Now, the ACC uh, is a member of the worldwide Anglican community. It has roughly 360,000 members in Canada in about 30 dioceses. Up next, an Indiana pastor who has been defrocked by the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America following an investigation into accounts that he failed to take appropriate action in a sexual misconduct case involving one of his relatives who was a teen at the time he committed the crimes. Yeah, the pastor is named Jared Olivetti. He's, I should say, now former pastor of the Emanuel Reformed Presbyterian Church in West Lafayette, Indiana. He was barred from serving as a minister or elder within the denomination and also lost church membership privileges, which included participating in sacraments such as communion. An Indy Star investigation in December found that Olivetti and Emmanuel Reformed Elder Board knew about the teen's abuse to other minors for four months before the congregation was told, and that Olivetti had tried to downplay the incidents and manipulate the church's response. Yeah, that's right. In fact, Ministry Watch had reported uh, on those events a couple of months ago, but now the Indiana Department of Child Services has become involved, and the boy admitted that he had touched other children inappropriately without their consent. He was found delinquent on multiple felony counts of molestation back in July of 2021 and was confined to a residential facility. Court records, though, show that there may have been as many as 15 victims. Now, the uh, RPCN 
RNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, formed a special judicial commission at its Senate meeting last summer to investigate the case. In January, Olivetti was placed on leave until the conclusion of the investigation. That's what we reported on. And in a Facebook post just this week, the commission said that its verdict had been distributed throughout its presbyteries to the congregations of the RPCNA, and that a trial for three elders also involved in that church would be coming in the near future. Now, Warren, our next story is a bit different because it involves church real estate. Yeah, it does, but it's also a story uh, that I think kind of gives us a peek at a quiet, but I would argue a dramatic shift that is happening in American Christianity, uh, and not really a good shift, I might add. It's uh, the hard reality that the number of churches in this country is not growing, uh, but hundreds are shutting down every month, often leaving church buildings and other facilities behind. Well, that's a pretty stark assertion. Do you have any data to support that? I do. A 2021 study from LifeWay Research based on data from three dozen of the largest denominations in this country found that about 4,500 churches closed in 2019, while only 3,000 new churches were started. That's a net loss of 1,500 churches in one year, or nearly 30 every single week. And that was in the year before the pandemic hit. As you know, Natasha and our listeners might remember as well, we've been reporting how many more churches have been shutting down during the pandemic, probably never to reopen. The 2021 Faith Communities Today study found that the median worship attendance for churches in the U.S. has also fallen fairly significantly from 137 people to just 65 people, about half over the last two decades. So what happens to church buildings and other assets when a church closes? Well, by law, the assets of one nonprofit organization must go to another nonprofit organization when it shuts down. That's to prevent people from just randomly forming nonprofit organizations, raising money, and then shutting down the nonprofits and taking the money for themselves. So it's a pretty good rule to prevent fraud, but it does place some limits on where those assets can go. In the case of churches, we've seen lots of different situations over the years. Sometimes declining churches will merge with other churches, sometimes growing churches, and the excess buildings, maybe bank accounts, cash, property, in other ways, will be used by the acquiring church, maybe as auxiliary ministries or multi-site locations, or sometimes those assets are simply sold and the cash is retained by the acquiring organization. And some churches are getting pretty creative with the use of older buildings. Yeah, that's right. In Northern California, for example, the Church of the Nazarene has turned an old church building into a community center that will actually house a large number of nonprofits, sort of a business incubator for Christian ministries. It's just one of a number of examples cited by Dominic Dutra, who is the author of a new book called Closing Cost, and it's a book about how church property can be repurposed. Dutra said that there are thousands of churches around the country that have closed or likely will close in the years to come, and the value of that real estate amounts to, in his words, billions of dollars. He said that's too much money not to have a plan. Now, you can read stories of those that 
did have a plan and also find out how you can get the book closing costs by going to the Ministry Watch website. Warren, the the war in Ukraine is still raging, of course, and we've been bringing news of Christian ministries doing work there for weeks, uh, but we don't want that war or the efforts to be forgotten. So do you have anything new this week? Yeah, we have the story of Dima Grishuk. When he drove east on a snow-covered road in Ukraine, he didn't encounter very much traffic, at least not traffic headed the way he was going, which was toward where the fighting was taking place. All the cars that he passed were headed in the opposite direction, headed west. But Grishuk is part of the Church of Christ in Ukraine, and he was part of a caravan of Christians taking supplies to congregations in their country's hard-hit eastern cities. They plan to help churches set up bomb shelters and deliver aid. They also plan to bring refugees back with them in their now-empty vehicles. That's wonderful. And it's just one of many stories we're hearing coming out of the Ukraine uh, these days. Yeah, and they're reminders that we should continue to be praying for our brothers and sisters there, and also to remember that even if the war ends tomorrow, which of course everyone hopes, but I think it's fair to say it's likely not going to happen that way, there's already been so much damage done, I've heard estimates in the billions of dollars, that it will likely take years to rebuild. So we continue to revise our list of Christian organizations doing work in the Ukraine, and I would like to encourage our listeners to check out that list pretty regularly. You can find it right on the front page of our website. Just look for the yellow and blue Ukrainian flag and click there. And Ukraine is not the only hot spot in the world currently. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we have the story of a medical missions group called Good Samaritans Clinic in Honduras. Uh, It was built 18 years ago, and today it's a 20,000-square-foot clinic built by Christian missionaries mostly, though often uh, with the cooperation and help from local groups as well. And it's credited with changing the whole trajectory of healthcare in this small region in Honduras. It's a great story, and you can read how a concentrated effort in one area can truly make a difference over time. In fact, let me use that story, if I could, Natasha, to make a point. Something that I'm seeing more and more as I get older is that often the most effective work is done when a ministry and a small group of donors concentrate their efforts on a single project over years or decades, actually develop a relationship with the people in a particular region. I would encourage our listeners to think strategically about their giving even if they can give only a small amount each year. And this story is a good place to start educating yourself about how to do that. Again, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll see the article right on the front page. Warren, we're going to take another quick break. But when we return, our weekly lightning round of ministry news. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. 
Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, fundraisers are the most optimistic about giving and the prospects for the future than they've been since the COVID-19 pandemic began in early 2020. That, according to a new survey that was just released this week, we got it from our partners at the Nonprofit Times, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being least confident and 10 being most confident, fundraisers are reporting an average confidence level of 8.04 that they will uh, reach their 2021 and early 22 fundraising goals. Now, that is a big uptick from a similar survey done in September of 2021 when the confidence level was 7.63 and 6.52 in September of 2020, much lower. And the survey also showed a dramatic shift in how organizations fundraise. Yeah, confidence in direct mail as a fundraising tool has plunged in the eyes of most of the respondents. Direct mail was selected by 50% or more of respondents as a priority in previous surveys, and that was the highest priority for fundraisers in September of 2021. However, by December, just a few months later, only 26.5% said that they would use direct mail as a priority in the next three months. 30.2% over the next six months and 35.2% during the next 12 months. Kevin Foyle, the chair of the American Fundraising Professionals Organization who commissioned the survey, said that this is the most significant change that we have ever seen. One reason fundraisers might be souring on direct mail is the high cost and the spotty service of the United States Postal Service. That's right. Postal rates are likely going up again in the next year or two, but some say relief from the spotty service may be on the way. Uh, Postal reform legislation gained approval from the Senate by a wide margin last week, and that means that the bill will now go to President Biden, uh, and he's promised to quickly sign the measure. It's called the Postal Service Reform Act. It's expected to save the Postal Service about $22.6 billion over 10 years by requiring new postal retirees to use Medicare as their primary insurance. Another $27 billion would be saved by the repeal of a pre-funding requirement for projected retiree health care costs. But don't get your hopes up by these measures because really this is just a cost transfer. It means that down the road, taxpayers are still going to be on the hook for all of these costs. So the overall cost structure doesn't appear to be changing all that much. And consumer price index data that was released this week, which is sometimes tied to postal rate increases, suggests that we could be seeing some classes of mail go up by 8% in the year ahead. Now, what ministries did Christina Darnell highlight in her Ministries Making a Difference column this week? 
Well, Mission Eurasia is sort of back uh, on the list. They have headquarters in Ukraine, and they're continuing to respond to the needs of endangered Ukrainians, both in-country and in neighboring countries where refugees have fled through its Ukraine Emergency Relief Fund. As of March the 5th, the nonprofit says that it had delivered more than 3,000 food packages and established three refugee assistance centers uh, with both short-term and long-term care. I should also mention China Aid. That's an organization that's not working in Ukraine. But it's a significant organization. It's led by well-known Christian activist Bob Fu. It released its uh, 2021 annual persecution report last week, and it detailed escalating oppression of Chinese house churches. Each year's report is based on research of persecution across China by China aid sources. The nonprofit says that while not entirely exhaustive, the 2021 annual report is one of the most comprehensive overviews of persecution within China over the last year. And finally, Trans World Radio, which is based right here in North Carolina, has set up a second transmitter in Eastern Europe to strengthen the signal of its Christian programs to people in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia two of which are in the Ukrainian language and another in Russian. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, just a quick reminder, you know, I mentioned last week that Christina's uh, Ministries Making a Difference column is made up of information that we mostly get from our readers and listeners. They send us news tips, press releases, emails, links, and Christina tracks down the details, and that's how she's able to put her column together. Um, We also get lots of other stories from our listeners and readers as well. So if you have a story that you'd like for us to cover or a ministry that you think needs a closer look, please send me an email. The email address is info at ministrywatch.com. That will come directly to my desk and we'll take it from there. Also, a reminder that you can help the program by leaving us a rating on your podcast app. The more readings we get, the easier it is for others to find us. It's a quick, easy, and I should add, free way that you can support Ministry Watch. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Anne Steich, Bob Smetana, Kathy Post, and Christina Darnell. Special thanks to The Christian Chronicle and The Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's podcast. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.